Well, let me say what a joy it is to be back. Some of you are thinking, I don't remember him. Well, it's all right. It was in the 90s, all right, if that'll make you feel better. If you say I was here then too and still don't remember you, I got trouble with you. But um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. What great music and worship this morning. I uh, appreciate Pastor Laney, his influence in my life way years ago. And being a Georgian, I used to preach for your former pastor, uh, Glenn, up in West Rome. And so I'm just grateful to join you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can be finding your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, many of you know possibly that I'm here to lead a national rally. So we'll have a lot of pastors who join us. Many of them will be here tonight, staff members and lay leaders from other churches. And then again tomorrow morning. But tonight at 6, I would encourage you to be here. I'm bringing a message on evangelism. Going to be sharing a couple of videos of um, family members and then some of my best friends that I've had the privilege to introduce to Christ and then to talk about their journey since. And really a challenge in evangelism. We're at a 70-year low in baptisms in our denomination, and I'm going to talk about two of the major reasons tonight. Tomorrow morning, you're all welcome to join us. 7.30 to 8.30 is a free breakfast. And then we have four speakers that will be training in evangelism. So one thing's for sure, I don't believe, believe anybody wants to go to heaven alone. And what I mean by that, there'll be nobody there as a result of your witness to them. So this morning, uh, I'd like to talk about the birthmarks of a believer. And uh, before I dive in there, I want to say also, Bryant Wright and I served together. Uh, Jared Stevens is one of my really, really good buddies, so I feel like I got connect here with all y'all been hearing in recent days. I want you to take note of this before I read the text. Normally, when you want to know about a person's relationship with Christ, 99% of the time, it begins with where that person's journey started. For instance, if you were to say to me, so, Pastor Johnny, tell us about your past. It would be something like this. My dad checked out when I was seven. I was raised by a single mom with five siblings. We ended up in a government project in Wilmington, North Carolina. I stayed in and out of trouble. When I was 16, I quit school because I was timid and shy. I didn't want to give a public book report. And so never went back to high school and kind of lived in the fast lane. Arrested on three different occasions, three different charges, with, um, and going to jail for those. And then when I was 20 years old, somebody invited me to church. I heard the gospel, and Jesus Christ changed my life. So it always goes back. But guess what the Apostle Paul does in this text? To authenticate a person's relationship with God, he doesn't start with where it started, he looks at their life now that they've been following Christ to see if their relationship with God can be authenticated by the way they live. For instance, have you ever heard someone that you witnessed to say, oh, yeah, 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 I, I'm a Christian. I, I trusted Christ 15 years ago. And yet, not being judgmental, just having common sense, you can look at their life and you see nothing in their life and never have that resembles Christ. I've watched everyone in our family, even my dad that checked out. I've seen every one of them come to faith in Christ. But I've got a younger brother, which is the biggest one of all of us, used to be a cage fighter, so I have to be careful how I witness to him. But the bottom line is, when I share with Freddie, Freddie will say something like this. I don't know why you worry about me, Johnny. Uh, I'm a Christian, and yet I'm his brother, and I've absolutely never seen anything, anything in his life 
that would lead me to believe that he's a Christian. You say, oh, you're being judgmental of him. No, come on, ladies and gentlemen. I'm genuinely concerned. Heaven is a home that God has prepared for those that have prepared to be there. And as my friend Freddie Gage from Texas used to say, eternity's too long to be wrong. So you want to get it right when you're talking about your eternal destiny. So I want you to look with me at this text. And then what we're going to do is show you, a, I think, a beautiful balance of evangelism and discipleship. It's not either or, it's both and. The Great Commission only has one divine imperative, and that is make disciples. That is creating something that doesn't exist. In other words, a disciple maker that makes disciples. I coined this phrase because I've taught discipleship nationally for the last three years. And here's the phrase. New Testament discipleship always involves the sharing of your faith. New Testament discipleship always involves the sharing of your faith. So listen to what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is interesting. Grace always precedes peace in the New Testament. You'll never see it opposite. Verse 2 says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And listen to what he remembers about them. And he's talking present tense now. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That's interesting, dropping that in there. Then he turns around and moves from present tense. He moves from the theme of election, and he begins to talk about what happened in their life in the past. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So when I first came and preached the gospel. So he didn't begin with where he preached the gospel and they were converted. He began with the fact that he's celebrating that their lives give testimony that they've experienced the gospel. Their birthmarks that these people are genuine believers. And look what he says about them. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. Remember Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, when a person first gets saved, you know how they best learn? They learn from other believers. I like to put it this way. Two things happened the night I gave my life to Jesus. God became my father and you became my family. So I want you to act like it, all right? Family here this morning. So that's what we have in common. Now, I wouldn't be going to heaven without God as my father, but I wouldn't be going to heaven maturely if it were not for my father's family. That was a good place to say amen. If you're looking for a place to slip one in, you, you missed a great opportunity right there. And that is the family of God. God never, I'm, I'm, just, I'm writing a major lesson now called the lone wolf. God never in time in, in meant for us to be lone wolves. The reason so many people are in trouble is because they're not in relationship and accountability with other believers. So you became followers of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Now look what happened to him in verse seven. So that you became examples to all that are in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. He said, first of all, you were influenced by us, but now you are influencing others. That's biblical discipleship. 
Uh, you're passing on to others what's been passed to you. And then what, look what happened in their life. There's a progression. It says, and from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Somebody preached it to you. Now you're out preaching it. And the Bible says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. By the way, did you see that? Did you know the Bible never teaches you to turn from your sins and turn to God? The Bible teaches you to turn to God so you can turn from your sins. The reason so many people are captured by a particular sin or a habit or a stronghold. I wrote a book. It's been the number one writing book I've ever written in my life. It's entitled Demolishing Strongholds. And I tell the story about a friend of mine whose stronghold that he didn't demolish actually demolished him. And so he's gone now and left eight children behind. And so it's amazing how sin can really do a number on us. And so we need to turn from idols to serve the living God. This is interesting. Theologians recently recorded what they believe is the most misquoted verse in the Bible. And they chose James chapter 4 and verse 7. James says this, my favorite book in the Bible, James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, didn't become a believer until after the resurrection. And he wrote these words to the church at Jerusalem. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How is it misquoted? Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. No, you can't resist the devil on your own power. You must first submit to God, and then you can resist. No more can you turn from your sins in your own power, but you turn to God, and as you turn to God, God empowers you and indwells you so you can turn from your idol. And then he says this in verse number 10, and it's sort of the capstone of a disciple's doctrine. And it says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know what he's referring to? The return of Jesus Christ. I, I like to go on a website called Pew Research. It, what it is, it's people from all over the world go to this website, and here's what they're saying. We wish our preachers would preach on this. So I go there and wonder, what, what does people want our preachers to preach on? Two years ago, you know what the number one theme was? And it was placed there thousands of times. We wish our pastors would preach more on judgment to come. Billy Graham, by the way, said if he could live life over again, he would preach more on judgment. He'd remind people that there's a final accounting day. So I, I wrote a whole series of sermons about the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, the last invitation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, all the things that deal with eschatology, the things of the end. So he's talking about the birthmarks of the believer. So with that in mind, in the time that I've got, and I'm trying to cover a lot of ground because I wanted to speak to a subject that I was requested to speak to. I want to talk, first of all, about Christ's effect on our lives presently. I do a lot on social media, and I've been saying this for 30 years, but boy, lately it's been a little toxic and hostile out there. And so I made this statement, no Christ if there's no change. Or another way to say it, no change, no Christ. What people would like to teach 
is that you can come to Jesus Christ and there'd be absolutely no change whatsoever. And, and the New Testament just doesn't teach that. And so I want to be anchored to, to the rock, the word of God. So what Paul does, he says, I want to show you the effects on their lives. And so he mentions three things. So let's just mention them quickly. He says, I've uh, observed your work of faith. Foundational spiritual qualities are being magnified in verse number three. He's saying that a true saving belief in Jesus Christ will always result in a mighty work of God that produces a change in one's nature or disposition. Is this true? When a person comes to Jesus Christ, here's what happens with the gospel. Number one, God forgives you of your sin, past, present, and future. Number two, God comes to live in your life in the person of God, the Holy Spirit. And he gives you this promise. I'll never leave you and never forsake you. That may not mean as much to, it, to you as I had this morning, but since I've had a father that did check out, it is wonderful now to have a heavenly father that says, I'll never leave you and I will never forsake you. And so God lives in me. God indwells the believer. And then the Bible teaches that when this life is over, and just for the record's sake, it will be over, the Bible teaches that God has given me the gift of everlasting life. I mentioned earlier I had the opportunity to spend an afternoon 10 years ago at the home of Dr. Billy Graham. So I had a couple of times of meeting him for different reasons, and then I had the privilege to be invited to his funeral service. I'll never forget what they said at his funeral service. His son Franklin was preaching it, and here's what he said. He said, in the words of D.L. Moody, my father wanted me to tell you all. He said, Franklin, tell him that I knew sooner or later my name would appear in the obituary column of the Charlotte Observer, and it would say that Billy Graham had died. He said, but remind them that Billy Graham is not dead. Billy Graham today is more alive than he's ever been. That is the hope of the gospel. Not only are sins been forgiven, not only is God living in me and places his nature and disposition in me that changes my want-tos, but the Bible teaches that he's coming again. And if he doesn't come in my lifetime, I'm going to him. So this true saving belief in Jesus results in mighty works. Uh, it's a transforming power of salvation. So these are holy, righteous deeds that honor God. And so the New Testament passage stresses the active side of faith. Salvation will necessarily produce a holy conduct. And that is the truth that reminds us that works flow from a saving faith. The Bible says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The half-brother of our Lord Jesus got it right. Uh, you, you probably know this, but Martin Luther voiced a Protestant Reformation leader. But I've been so encouraged by so many of his quotes. But one thing that he did that, that I've always just been amazed by, he tore the book of James from his Bible. I said that one time and somebody really, really loved him and they took me to task until they researched it. And they, then they got confused with the facts. But the bottom line is, he tore James from his Bible. Why? He could not reconcile in reading the book of James faith and works. He, he felt like they were saying faith and works. James was not saying faith and works is salvation. He was saying at salvation, your faith goes to work. Your faith does work. And so here's what he says in chapter 2 and verse 18. James Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And so he really magnified the fact that when a believer comes to Christ, 
they begin a work of faith. God does a work in your life. And innate within you, God places a passionate desire to serve him. I, I like to remind people, I had no desire Managed a pool room for four years of my life, became a hustler in that game. When I was 20 years old, had one passionate desire, and that is to be a professional pool player. I was playing the second string in this nation when I got saved, and people always say, do you still play? I've got a professional table at my house, or I did until just a few months ago. And somebody said, so you still play? I said, yeah. They say, are you good? I am. And uh, every, every deacon at Woodstock has tried to beat me. And then the other big question that comes is, man, you used to gamble a lot. Do you still gamble? Uh, if I do, I give all the winnings to Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and that's not true. But uh, no, I, I don't, don't gamble anymore. But when Christ changed my life, he really, are y'all listening? He changed my want-tos. He literally changed my want-tos. No longer did I want to do that. There were things that I wanted to do. God willed in me to do things that would bring honor and glory to him. Then he says, it's a labor of love. He said, I've observed in your life as a believer, not only a, a work of faith, but a labor of love. True believers display Christian love, and this love is motivated by God. So loving one's enemy is an expression, listen to this, of the power of salvation. How can you love them? Corey Ten Boone, if you've ever read her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boone will tell the story that they, she was with her sister in prison for a period of time. She watched as soldiers raped her sister in front of her. After they were free and the war was over, she chose to stay in Germany. And she would go stand on the street corners and she would share the gospel. Corey Ten Boone. And Corey Ten Boone said one day when she was preaching, she looked up and she would never forget the face. The soldier that raped her sister was there. They say you can't have two thoughts at one time. I believe I can. And some people say you're schizophrenic. Maybe, but I can have two thoughts. So sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm thinking about something else. But the bottom line is, Corey said as she was speaking that day, sharing the gospel, this person was listening very intently. And she was saying to herself, God, I can't forgive that person. And she said, then Jesus reminded her of Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit of God, which God has given us. So if we'll yield ourselves to God, there's people you can't love, but listen carefully. There is no one that God can't love through you. And so when I surrender my life to God, God can help me to love them. And then Jesus would put it this way, John 3, 14. We know we've passed from death unto life. In other words, we've experienced God's salvation because we love the brethren. We love one another. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And then he mentions a patient of hope. That speaks of a persevering anticipation of seeing God's future glory and receiving our eternal inheritance. I, I journaled a good bit, and, and I wrote this statement years ago. I want to do now what I'll be glad I did then. Or I want to live with eternity in mind. It will help you in your walk. The Bible teaches in 1 John chapter 3 in the first three verses that if you will reflect on the return of Jesus Christ, it, it will magnify the need for holiness in your life. By the way, let's define holiness. Christ in you. Christ in you is the best definition you'll ever come up with on holiness. 
And so there's this patience of hope that we persevere. You see, salvation is never temporary. It is always eternal. Let me go a step further. Repentance is not temporary. It is always eternal. And so we have this hope that's in our life. And so he says, just presently I've observed you and here's what I've noticed. Now, right in the middle of verses three and following, he drops a statement and he makes a clarifying truth known. If you've got your Bible open, he says in verse four, knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. Pastor Johnny, what are you gonna teach about election this morning? That it's in the Bible. Warren Wiersbe died this year. I'm gonna make a statement. There's not a Southern Baptist preacher alive that doesn't have a Warren W. Weirdsby commentary in their library. Weirdsby has just really helped the body of Christ. Let me tell you what Warren Weirdsby said. Warren Weirdsby said, election, deny it, lose your soul. Election, explain it, lose your mind. <laughs> They've been debating election and predestination for almost 500 years. And so, and, and I'm one of them. I've been right in the middle also. Got to stand in my own heart. But he just mentions it here. And this verse 4 stands before the present effect. Something happened in their life. And, and it, even the Jesus of their past conversion is all following as a result of what God did. He uses the word knowing means to be able to see or perceive. Paul used this passage to explain his perception of the Thessalonians' genuineness. What he's actually saying is, you are beloved brethren because God changed your life. Listen to this. Election just simply means it's his choice of you. Uh, we did not choose him. He chose us. So listen to this statement. Hey, pastor, thank you for sharing the gospel with me, but I'm not interested today, but I just want to inform you. Listen to this. I'll get saved when I want to. No, you won't either. I don't know if anyone's told you lately, you don't get saved when you want to. And let me tell you why. Because you don't want to. The reason you get saved, the Spirit of God initiates something with the gospel that exposes our need, and then he woos and draws us, and we begin to resist. So just to think that just one day you'll say, well, I just think today I will do that. No, no, no. Uh, his choice of you. Adrian Rogers put it this way. God chose you, so you could choose him. So the Thessalonians were God's elect along with all who believed throughout history. If you look at verses six and verse nine, man's will participates in conversion in response to God's prompting. Here's the bottom line. No one ever got saved without the gospel. And so God speaks, God chooses, God sets his love upon us, God moves upon our heart, but he does it through the gospel and by the Holy Spirit of God and calls us to himself. Well, let me, let me move to the third and kind of final area that I'll spend my time this morning. So first of all, he goes back and instead of going to the past, he starts with the present. And he speaks of the fact that you have a genuine faith and here's how I know, your life has been changed. You know, coming out of the background that I did, I gambled a lot on the pool table. And any of you men or ladies that have played billiards or ever watched somebody gamble, on a pool table, <clears throat> I came out of poverty. And so I didn't have the money to put up to play for the large amounts. So I had friends that did. I had the game down. They had the money down. 
So what I would do is go in, and about two weeks' salary would be placed in the pocket, and we'd play six ball for two weeks' salary. Not, not mine. And it was their money. Well, after I got saved, they would call me, and they said, Hey, Johnny, there's some guys here that want to play you. You've played them before. Come on, we'll put the money up. Something happened. Look at me. I'd say, I, I can't come, Marty. Why not? Marty, I got saved. Well, I heard you got religion. No, no, Marty, it's more than that. I have this relationship with God. And he's changed my life. Charles Spurgeon said tonight he got saved. He lost 85% of his vocabulary. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. Look at me. When God steps out of heaven and steps into a person's life, God changes that person. Doesn't mean that you can't go wayward on God. You certainly can do that. But I'm telling you, God changes your want tos, and God puts something supernatural in you. His nature. People say to me, they said, You used to never go to church. And I'm preaching 11 times this week. They say, You're in church every day preaching somewhere now. Why do you feel you have to go to church all the time? And I just came up with a little saying Well, since I got saved, uh, see, I think you understand this doctrine. God lives in me. And he likes to go to church. I take him. You know. he, he don't want to be on a deer stand Sunday morning. Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, he, he'd rather not be at NASCAR on, on the Lord's. But anyway, that's another thing. And should have left that alone. I don't know you that well. But, um, but when I would tell, I want you to hear this. When I would say to one of my pagan friends, hey, Rex, I got saved. They wouldn't respond. Yes, they did. They just didn't respond verbally. I can hear it with my heart now. Let me tell you what they were saying. Hey, I got saved, Rex. We'll see. Because even the pagan world believes that when a man or a woman meets God, they'll be different. And they'll see. I went back recently to do a funeral, and it was like a pool room reunion. All my old friends came, and I didn't recognize them. And this is what happens with us preachers. Hey, remember me? I hadn't seen them in 40 years. And then you can lie and say, yeah, yeah, how's it been? Or you can be honest and say, help me. <laughs> uh, and then they'll tell you who they are, and then you'll look, and you'll say, I'm a dog, if it's not, Ronnie, how in the world are you? That day I asked if any of them at that funeral wanted to go to dinner with me. After I buried my cousin, I'd come back. Forty, forty came back to go with me. My wife, Janet, was with me, and she said, why do you think so many came back? I said, some of them questioned my sincerity when I first came to Jesus. They had not had a chance to observe. But after 40 years, I believe they're pretty convinced that I'm serious about my commitment with God. And it gave me a great platform. And tonight, you're going to hear the story of my best friend. We were almost killed together in a car accident with me driving. And if we'd have got to our destination, we might have been killed a different way. But you're going to hear how God radically changed his life and family members. And I'm going to show you in living color what God did in their life. And so, so Paul is just saying to these folks, uh, you've been changed. But now let me tell you what he's going to do, and this is where we'll close. He's going to reach back to their past. And isn't that amazing? He talked about their present life. Like you, you, you can know they're a Christian because of their love. They first called them Christians in Antioch. Why did they call them Christians at Antioch? Because they had known Jesus and they said, these people look like Jesus. Did you know this is only said of one person in the entire Bible? Do you know that when John the Baptist started preaching, you know who Herod said he is? He said, it's Jesus Christ risen from the dead. 
they must they were mistaking John the Baptist for Jesus Christ. Have you ever been mistaken as being Jesus? But God so radically lived through John. John said, I want to be strong in the sight of the Lord. Drink neither wine nor strong drink. I want to count for God. I don't want mediocre Christianity. So let's deal with their past. He talks, first of all, about the power of the gospel in verse 5. Quickly, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you. He was saying, when I first came to y'all, I preached the word of God. I want to give you a word of encouragement. Every Sunday school teacher, every pastor, every musician, every Christian, anytime you share the gospel, it does not travel alone, but it travels with the Holy Spirit goes with it. The power of God goes with it. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. If I go and share the gospel and come back and say, I don't think it went well. I got kind of confused on a couple of terminologies, and I did my best to share the gospel. You weren't the only one there sharing the gospel. The power of God was in the room sharing the gospel. The Holy Spirit was in the room. I remember one time when I got saved, God laid somebody on my heart. Has God ever laid somebody on your heart? And you thought, not me, Lord. Tell my brother to go see them. God said, go see Jack Vereen. I mean, it was on my heart. I couldn't get it out of my mind. Go see Jack. Who was Jack Vereen? Jack was the biggest friend I hung out with before I got saved. His arms looked like my thighs. I mean, that dude was strong as an ox. And I don't know how else to say this. On the way to his house to share the gospel by myself, I had to stop at the restroom twice. Do you get, the, get, get what I'm saying? I mean, I was, it scared me. And so I went to his house. I'll never forget. I went in fear and trepidation. But let me say this. Uh, God never intended for for fear to paralyze us. Maybe it'll help us to realize how dependent we are on God. I went and I began to share with Jack, and I just told him how Christ had changed my life and began to share Bible scriptures of what God had done in my life. And as I did, Jack began to weep. See, what I didn't know is while I was sharing, the Spirit of God was working. The power of God was working. Don't you ever underestimate the gospel. I wrote a sermon on verse 5 alone. You know what I call it? Confidence in the gospel. I've got confidence in the gospel. And I've shared the gospel so many times, and I've watched people that didn't want to be there come to Christ. I always preach a sermon different for some reason. My mind is, I got ADD, and my mind's like a transistor radio. I'm getting signals from everywhere. And here's what I feel like I ought to share. Old boy got up one day and told his wife, he said, I love you. I love you, baby. I'll do anything for you. And Mother's Day's coming. You tell Rocky what you want, and I will do it on Mother's Day. She said, go to church with me. He said, he thought, oh, my God, she could have asked anything other than that. So he came. He just sat there. He came to get it over with. He didn't want to be there. There's an old Church of God song that says, while I was preaching, somebody touched me. Must have been the hand of the Lord. Glory, 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 somebody touched me. So as I was preaching that day, I didn't know who Rocky was, but God touched him. During the invitation, he came forward. And, and when I receive someone, I, I receive them with questions. I don't put answers in their mouth. I said, sir, why are you coming? I'll never forget this, he said. I don't know, because I don't like you. <laughs> I don't like this church. But sir, when you were preaching this morning, something got hold of my heart. Thank God, are y'all listening? The gospel never travels alone. The Holy Spirit, don't you underestimate the power of God. 
And God changed Rocky Belcher and later Runan, the power of the gospel. And here's what Paul said. When I came in, I know you belong to God because the gospel got hold of you and it didn't travel alone. And then he said this, you became imitators, followers of us. I don't know about your journey, but when I got saved, I didn't own a Bible and I'd been to church maybe three times in my life. No one in my family. I was the first one in my family, immediate family to go to church. I got me a Bible, began to study it, and a guy named Alfred Joyner, a truck driver, big old tough guy, started coming by my house every night. And we, didn't even, we didn't even talk discipleship back then. But I'd say, I had a question, Alfred. What does this verse mean? Hey, Alfred, I shared with somebody today, and they said this. What would you have said to them? And he took me out. I'll never forget this. He called me one night and said, hey, get that little New Testament they gave you tonight. They baptized you. I'd been saved about three months. I said, okay. He said, we're going to see a guy that's part of a motorcycle group. I said, all right. And I thought, I can't wait to see how Alfred's going to handle this. We got over to the house. I can still visualize. His name was Bo. He had a metal chair. He swung it around and straddled it and said, what you got on your mind? Here's what Alfred said. Jesus changed Johnny Hunt's life, and we wanted to come by so he could tell you his story. You know why? Oh, this is good discipleship. You know how I could tell it? Because I've been imitating him. Two different occasions, Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. Did you know that when somebody in your family or a close friend gets saved and they're close to you, did you know they don't know how to suck their life from God? So you know what they do? They suck their life from you until they learn to suck their life from God. So they first of all become, somebody says, well, they're not supposed to be following me. Yes, they are. And then they follow Christ. They follow you as you follow Christ. They don't know how to follow him. We display how. How? Through our discipleship. Through us fleshing out. You know how people become givers? It's caught. They watch others give. Time's gone. Here it is quickly. Imitators, followers of us, we follow the Lord. Then look what happens. Uh, they, had, they had joy in the midst of suffering and hardship. They received the word much affliction. In, in other words, Christianity is not a fair weather religion. When I went to the doctor 10 years ago, and he, he's my friend, my medical doctor is Carl Capilouto, and he said, he was about to choke up, and he said, I've, I've just got bad news. I hate to give this to you. You've been a friend for so long, but you have cancer. And uh, Christianity is not fair-weather religion. It's not like, why did you do this to me? I told my wife, I said, who could be better prepared to get news like this? I'm so saved, it's pitiful. I'm saved to the uttermost. I'm telling you, the Christ that I serve can go with you with much joy, even in affliction. Uh, the last time Franklin Graham spoke at Woodstock before his daddy, Billy Graham, died, he said, my father wanted me to send y'all a message. God is my witness. Donna, my assistant's here. Maybe she'll remember this. He said, Daddy asked me to ask y'all to quit praying for him to be healed. He's ready to go. <laughs> he said, y'all have prayed and kept me here long enough. I want to see Jesus and Ruth. Quit praying. <laughs> they say if we're not careful, we spend more time trying to keep 99-year-olds out of heaven than we do 10-year-olds out of hell. They were examples to follow. Isn't that something? I followed Alfred 
until I became the type of disciple that others could follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. I wrote 10 lessons on what does it mean to be a disciple. They were examples for They faithfully proclaimed the gospel. One day somebody cared enough to tell me the gospel, and then the day came that I cared enough to tell others. I'm going to let you hear the stories tonight of my family members. I've got a brother that's older than me, and I gave him the gospel. And he was aggravated with me. But I want to give you good news. For the last 31 years, he's pastored the church 10 miles north of me. They faithfully proclaimed the gospel. And some, you know what someone says? Family's the hardest person to witness to. Who could possibly love your family more than you? I'll deal with that tonight. You, you ought to come tonight. Preacher's pretty good. <laughs> Repentance and transformation. You turn to God from idols. I told you that. And then last of all, living in light of his return. Do you know there was a day in our churches we regularly preached sermons of the second coming, eschatology, wrath of God. Do you know Billy Graham said if I could live life over, I would preach more on judgment. Did you know the number one doctrine that offends unbelievers in the United States is final accountability. People say, I don't want want you to tell me that uh, I've gotten by. My wife may not know, but he knows. And it ain't over until it's over. People don't like to talk about it, final accounting. Um, Marriage supper of the Lamb. Did you know that I'm going to go to a wedding and I'm going to be involved? And it's going to be the only time I've ever been at a wedding that the groom is going to be the centerpiece. We're going to be the bride. Guess who's going to perform the ceremony? God the Father. Guess who's getting married? We're, we're formally going to be getting married to Jesus. It's already happened. It's going to happen there. Uh, I know what some of you are saying now. Any idea what they're going to serve to eat? You know. <laughs> and I pick on that sometime too, but I'm going to keep that to myself. I've told enough lies here this morning. But anyway, cutting up with you. Uh, but I want to just make a statement. We're going to pray. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is coming again. 70% of the preachers in America, there's over 350,000 churches. 70%. 70% of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary believe that the pandemic is one of the loud birth pains of the return of Jesus Christ. He's coming again. This doesn't affect us. It affects the whole world. You know what the number one struggle in America is during the pandemic? People panicking over mortality. People have never reflected so much. If I get it, will I die? They've never thought so much about their mortality. There's not a one of us in here that shouldn't think regularly about the fact that we can't stay. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the gospel that you made a way for me to be forgiven, for you to live in me, and for me to know that when this life is surely over, I can spend eternity with you. Whether they're watching on Marshall campus, in this room, or online, may the Holy Spirit 
bring people to realize the single greatest decision of their life is what they'll do with Jesus. Bring someone today to surrender to Christ. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would encourage you in the solemnness of your soul to commit yourself to him right now. Hey, this is good news. Do you know you can be saved right where you are? If you need to be saved, would you be willing to say this to God in prayer right now? Make it yours. Lord, I need you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and save me. Thank you for dying for me. Help me to live for you. Thank you this morning for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me. Help me to never be ashamed of you. Well, if you've surrendered and prayed that prayer, I hope you'll tell someone with you today. Most of you are like myself. You have a, a changed life story. Whether you were a child or an adult, there's been a time you committed your life to the Lord. Are you a disciple that followed someone more mature than you and then have you started leading others? Are you, you really a disciple of Jesus? You're going to spend eternity with him? You don't want to face him empty-handed. Have you ever personally prayed with someone else to receive him and they became a Christ follower? Man, don't, don't go to heaven empty-handed. Take someone with you. Let God have his way in your life. Father, thank you for our time together. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.